Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Quietly, there is the must-read of the IMF, and that is the fiscal book, the so-called purple book. Uh, the director of fiscal affairs, Vito Gaspar, joins us on the definitive read on the fiscal uh, world. Uh, your theme, uh, uh, Vito, is real simple. You want a fair shot for all. If we have a modest or substantial fiscal policy, how do we guarantee that it diffuses into a system for all? A fair shot for all is the theme of the fiscal monitor, as you point out, uh, Tom. I would say that the fair shot theme allows us to stress three different points. The first one is that vaccination may well be the highest return global uh, public project ever identified. And that was exactly what uh, the uh, managing director of the IMF was uh, stressing a moment ago in your quote, a accelerated pace of vaccination that would give a fair shot of to everyone, independently of the country where the person happens to live, uh, to have a vaccine shot in the arm would make the global economy uh, bigger by 9 trillion accumulated by 2025, and that would generate uh, uh, tax revenues in advanced economies alone uh, to the tune of 1 trillion. And therefore, the investment in vaccination has a tremendous return. A second aspect mm -hmm. of the fair shot talks exactly to your question. If we look at a blog that we put out uh, at the time of the release of the fiscal monitor yesterday, you see that uh, measures, fiscal actions that were put in place to a total of 16 trillion up to now are very unevenly distributed around the world. Most of the action mm -hmm. takes place in advanced economies, emerging markets, have done uh, significantly right. less, low-income uh, <clears throat> developing countries less still. But also importantly, advanced economies are uh, expected to persist in fiscal support for longer and are uh, now projected to recover stronger. And that opens the possibility of a great divergence, as mentioned by Gita Gopinath, in our world economic outlook. Policies yeah. must be in place to uh, avoid the great divergence. Last point on the fair shot. Chapter two of the fiscal monitor calls for a fair shot at life success for all. A fair shot that uh, starts from the realization that inequality pre-COVID-19 was high in many places of the world. These pre-existing inequalities made COVID-19 worse, and in turn, COVID-19 made inequalities worse. That does threaten a vicious uh, spiral 
of uh, inequality and inequality consequences mm. in order to foster yeah. social cohesion and trust the fiscal monitor advises stronger redistributive uh, policies but also universal access to fundamental public services like health right. education well and uh, social security. Vitor, Vitor, a lot of people would agree with this. I think that actually most people would be on the same page with these overall ideas. The question is how you get there. And in your analysis of the $16 trillion uh, of, dollars of fiscal stimulus, what have been the most effective types of spending to contract the gap between the wealthy and the poor? And I'm not just talking about vaccinations, but an ongoing non-pandemic economy. So if, if you look at the pandemic and you look in particular at 2020, where we have a lot of information, we do see that the priorities everywhere in the world for all country groups were to enable the health system to combat COVID-19 and then to extend emergency lifelines to households and firms made vulnerable by the pandemic those interventions were extremely effective. We estimate that without fiscal support, the contraction of economic activity in 2020 would have been three times worse. And that would be a fall on the scale mm -hmm. of the Great Depression. That was averted. And that is extremely important and shows the power of fiscal policy. But we also document that uh, countries that had sounder public finances to begin with, that had right. easier access to financing, that had buffers, were able to do more and persist for longer. And that is something that determines wow. economic developments going forward. So mm. sound public finances are crucial to be able to use the power of fiscal policy. Well, we are out of time. Vitor Gaspar, thank you so much for joining us this morning. The IMF Director of Fiscal Affairs. This has been a great tradition uh, for us at the IMF meetings. We are in Washington, not this year. William Lee joins us with the Milken Institute, their chief economist, with far more encyclopedic ability on the Pacific Rim after his service at the International uh, Monetary Fund. Billy, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. In my conversation with Gorgieva yesterday, there's no question we've never seen this divergence in the American economy. Define over the next year what locomotive America will mean for the global economy. This is the first time in my career that I've seen a managing director get so hot under the collar about the distribution of the fiscal stimulus and how the disparities are the, one of the greatest threats to the world economy as it grows. And, and, and actually, I think we should back down a little bit about the, the impact that China has had on the global economy, because when China got back on gear again, uh, they did it through the supply side. They were able to export medical supplies and, and electronic equipment to the United States, and that really helped them continued you know, their, their, their resuscitation from COVID. In the case of the United States, we are much more of an importing economy. And we, as we recover, will be a, hu a huge locomotive to the world. The problem is the world is not ready for the locomotive effect because the vaccine distribution is so skewed toward the US and UK that the, everyone else is still shut down. And, and, and that's the real issue of, of that lack of, uh, of proper distribution of the fiscal impulse that uh, uh, the, man the managing director and uh, the, the, the Purple Book is, is talking about.
So, Bill, let's put some numbers on this. What does that divergence look like through 2021? Well, it seems as though uh, if you just look at the vaccine distribution um, in the United States and UK, there's probably more than enough uh, vaccine allocated to the population. I think I've seen a number in the U.S. It's up close to about 120, 130 percent of the population can be vaccinated with its available supply. If you look at Europe and you look at uh, even Western Europe, that number drops right back down to about 40 percent. And if you look at a place like uh, India, uh, it goes down to the single digits. And now you have, it, it, to be fair, there's a lot of vaccine resistance out there. A lot of people, even uh, doctors in India are saying, uh, I refuse to take the vaccine because I don't really trust the data associated with my, my national produced vaccine. So, so there are several forces that work there that are slowing down the recovery of the world economy. And as that disparity continues, that's going to be a huge problem of, of getting the world back to its normal growth pace again. How much of a locomotive can the U.S. be if it does not pass any additional fiscal stimulus? We've been talking this morning about some setbacks with the infrastructure plans. Well, Lisa, I mean, as an American, I think we, we both know that uh, the one thing Americans do well is spend. And, and they think that's prevented Americans from spending is the fact that the service sector has been shut down through all the COVID uh, lockdowns. As soon as the jobs come back online and people get what they have a sense of permanent income into their pocketbooks, the spending is going to rip uh, like you've never seen before. Uh, the, the, the fiscal impulse has been a temporary infusion of funds into people's pockets. And as we know from Econ 101, transitory income or what's not considered permanent income is something that doesn't get spent completely. And that's why you see the savings rate so high right now. <clears throat> Billy, I want to touch on Kishore Mabubani, the giant intellect from Singapore, and his book, Has China Won? You are, with Mabubani, our Pacific Rim expert. What do we overemphasize or miss in our present study and worry, 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 worry about the Pacific Rim? Give us perspective there. Our Bloomberg audience is absolutely focused uh, on the fact that China represents a huge market. Everybody wants to go there from JP Morgan, Jamie Dimon to, to the smallest business uh, uh, entrepreneur who wants to sell their parts into, uh, into China and sell their services into China. One thing that we're missing, which I'm glad Bloomberg columnists are picking up on, is China's continued uh, focus on Taiwan. Uh, the very first question that Joe and I asked uh, President uh, Nixon and, and Dr. Kissinger, when they opened up, was, what are we going to do about Taiwan? Everybody else had, uh, you know, Vietnam and all sorts of other items on the agenda, but China has been laser-focused on Taiwan. Right now, we see an enormous amount of air incursions by the Chinese Air Force into Taiwan airspace. They're just trying to get the Taiwanese pilots to fire on them first and to provoke a war. And I, I think the, the threat to the United States and to the rest of the world, the Western world, is if we lose Taiwan, we lose TSMC. The, the huge manufacturer of semiconductors out there. And once we lose that, uh, it's game over for, for the digitalized economy as, as we're developing it in the West. Uh, Bill, there's a huge accusation underpinning a comment you just made, and I just want to highlight it and pull you up on it just for a second. Do you really think they're trying to provoke a war or they're trying to assert their power, show their power, their dominance in the region to the rest of the world? There is a difference. Uh, John, that's why I'm not a diplomat in the State Department. So, uh, yes, that's exactly the right way to put it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, think, I, th I want to emphasize to our audience how serious the issue is. Um, they will go to the edge of war to assert that China is back in the 
the global diplomatic game. Understood. They should be treated as an equal to the United States, and they should not be thought of as an emerging market, except in WTO, where they still want the subsidies. I'm no diplomat either. Everyone knows that, Bill. It's good to catch up. Bill Lee, William Lee, Milken Institute Chief Economist. Thank you, sir. digress. It is not an annual visit, but at this time of year, it is always important to speak to Dennis Gartman. He is with the University of Akron and their endowment fund, legendary in his newsletter. And what you need to know is he lives next to a golf course because that's really what he does is gets up at 6 a.m. after writing the Gartman letter and tries to get in, well, nine holes, if not 18 as well. Dennis Gartman, I've got to go to golf. The Masters is upon us. It is what it is. Time yeah. stands still and does Justin Johnson is going to really try to do what Tiger Woods did in 2001-2002. Can he do it? Is he really that dominant? He, right now, he is really that dominant. He is the, the best player in the world, no question about it. He drives it well. He's in control of his iron play. Keep an eye on him. He's uh, Right now, he's probably the favorite. The guy that I'm really going to be pulling for is young Mr. Spieth whose game has really come around in the yeah. last two two or three months. So it's good to see it's good to see him back on top. But right now, there's no question Dustin Johnson is the best player in the world and he's the he's he's the favorite far and away. I want It'll to be talk, a great tournament. We want to talk more in golf, but I just got a message from Lisa. No one cares about this. Get to the markets <laughs> That's here. Right. She's right, of course. <laughs> Dennis Gartman, yesterday we heard on this program that it was probably not a good thing to cut your winners. The stocks go up and there's such an urgency. I get to a price target, sell, 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 and your letter has been gospel on let your winners run. What do you do yeah. with the fangs? What do you do with the big tech right now as they reemerge? You know, the interesting thing is I have been detrimental. I haven't looked uh, a, a pro, a, a, approvingly on, on the high-tech stocks. I'd rather own the things that I've been made famous by wanting to own the things that if I drop them on my foot will hurt. Steel, tires, shipping, railroads, the things that I understand. But right now, everybody who's owned tech has done well. It suffered uh, egregious losses at one point. The, the, the Archegos uh, circumstance last week did uh, a lot of damage to the psychology, but they keep coming right back. So hold on to your winners. The, my, my first rule of trading is do more of that which has been working and try your darndest to do less of that which is not. It, it works in life and it works in trading. Do more of that which is working and less of that which is not. And the tech has been working. It has worked without me being involved in it. Again, I'd rather own steel, I'd rather own tires, I'd rather own railroads, I'd rather own ships, I'd rather own copper miners. But boy, the people who have owned the, the high tech have done extraordinarily, stunningly, shockingly well. God bless them. The old economy place, Dennis. Why the old economy place right now? Why the old economy? Uh, what, John? For you, sir. The old economy place, the things that if you drop, they would hurt your foot. The old economy stories, the cyclicals, why do you want to stick with them? <laughs> It's the things that I understand. I can count the amount of steel that has been uh, uh, created and, and exported. I can count the ships that are moving. I can count the railroads that have moved. I can count container ships. I can count tires. I can count ball bearings, those sorts of things. I can count what's going to happen in those, what they have been doing. I can make a projection forward. And as long as the, the domestic and global economy continues to work, those stocks are going to do well. Plus, they pay a dividend. So to me, at, at my age of 70 years old, I have to look at things that I understand 
things that pay me a dividend, things that pay me an income going forward. And I'll let the younger uh, people in the markets trade the high-tech stocks, which I simply do not understand and never shall. I, as is... I was saying beforehand, I'm still astonished at, at Scope or at, at Skype and Zoom that we can do what we do nowadays. I don't understand how it works, but they work. Let other people do them, trade them and do well with them. God bless them. Do you think, Dennis, there is a broader generational issue around stock selection right now? Oh, no question about it, John. There is a real, a real generational, change, generational change. There was a great book in the 1960s on trading in the stock market, and I'm trying to remember, I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now, but the great thesis was, I got to get me a kid. Uh, kids understand, younger uh, members of, the, of our younger people in the younger generation understand what's going on in high tech. I don't. And I, under, and I get that. I understand that. I know there's a generational shift. I know what I'm good at, and I know what I'm not good at. Well, I say forget Bitcoin. It's Robux if you want to bet with the children in terms of <laughs> what their currency of choice is. Given your analysis of things that when you drop them, they hurt your foot, can you talk a little bit about the price increases that we've seen not only in lumber, but in corn, in the food staples? And this is crimping a lot of the lower income earners, frankly, that are not seeing wage hikes at the same kind of pace. Do you see them continuing or is there some sort of stasis reaching as people plant more crops and harvest more trees? Well, what was interesting about the crop numbers coming out last week with the prospective planning report in, in soybeans and corn, that the government had, well, the LaSalle Street, Chicago, had missed what the government report was by about 2 million acres. Farmers were not going to increase production as dramatically as I thought they would, and as many people on Wall Street and LaSalle Street had thought that they would. It, the, the prospective planning's report could be uh, egregiously wrong and miss the number eventually what put, gets put in the ground by a rather large factor. But nonetheless, farmers have not responded as aggressively as we thought they would. Plus the fact that the monetary authorities have been so expansionary, it, that is the, the major precursor, the major driving force behind rising commodity prices. And quite honestly, I don't see anything that's going to stop the rising commodity prices. Lumber might be a little overdone at $1,075 per thousand board feet, up from $300 per thousand board feet a year ago. Maybe lumber's a little excited on the upside. But corn can go higher, wheat can go higher, beans can go higher, cotton can go higher. Commodity prices generally have been moving from the lower left to the upper right, and as long as the monetary authorities continue to be expansionary, that's not going to change. Dennis, let's end on this, something that you've been expert on for decades. That is gold. That is one commodity that has not participated in this incredible rally. In fact, a lot of people have wondered why it's remained suppressed. Some people say people are investing in Bitcoin instead. What's your view here? How much more upside is there in a world that is still dominated by some of these younger, newfangled ideas, such as Bitcoin? <laughs> There's no question that Bitcoin, Ethereum, et al. have taken at the margin, some of the buying that would have gone into the gold market. No question about that, and that's going to continue. Uh, again, just like I avoid the high-tech stocks, I've avoided Bitcoin, you know, woe betide me when I start to trade it. But those who have done well in it, I wish them well. I hope it continues. I, I'm not sure that it shall. I'm still going to own gold, and I think that gold now at, 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 19, at the past several days has broken out to the upside. I think most of the selling has occurred. And uh, as the chairman of the University of Akron's endowment, we, uh, five weeks ago, six weeks ago, made our, took our first position in gold for the first time ever. Interesting. Just to uh, hedge away against inflation. What was the pushback uh, on that, Dennis? What was the pushback on your conservative endowment fund to Gartman getting pushback. up on the table and screaming gold? There was pushback, no question about it. But uh, my, my uh, insights and my uh, history have uh, prevailed. We'll see if I'm, I'm right. Thus far, I'm up at 1% or 2%, which wow. is a good help. 
but no question about it, there was pushback and it was, there, people were reticent to move out of equities and to move even at the margin. We only moved 3%, but people, there was discussion and pushback within the, uh, within the committee, but eventually I prevailed. We'll see if I'm right. Dennis, we will, and we look forward to catching up again soon. Can we finish where we started? Dustin Johnson, the robot of golf. Is this bad for the game, Dennis, that this is the greatest player in the world right now? I think the one thing that's bad for the game is how far these young men are hitting the ball. They're making, they're changing golf courses yep. around the country. They're making golf courses obsolete. And I, we're going to have to do something to slow down the, oh, the ability on. for these young men to hit the ball 350, 360, 430 yards. Something has to change. And probably that means the golf ball has to change. What about the club? Uh, I, I gave up my persimmon driver only a couple of years ago. I'm an old guard guy. And, you know. I love Tom getting, in in, getting involved in golf. He's never played golf in his life. What about what, Dennis, we should tell Tom, just in case he doesn't know. Tom, do you know who Dustin Johnson has been dating for a long time? Yeah, I'm aware of that. You Mr. Know. Mr. Gretzky's daughter. She gets great seats. Yeah. That he knows. That's the only thing he's interested <laughs> yeah, yeah. in. Honestly, yeah, forget the club. The forget the club. But Dustin Johnson. Dennis is going to catch out. Dennis Gartman, University of Akron Endowment Fund Chairman and former here. editor. Oh, of the Gartman letter. Right now, Michelle Meyer with us at Bank of America, head of U.S. economics and really outstanding on the pulse of the American economy. Michelle, I want to collate in, if I can, all of Bank of America economic research. Do you people look at it as a linear path forward in the coming quarters and even coming years, or is there an accelerant to all of this good news? Yeah, it's, um, I would say it's somewhat hump-like um, in that we are looking at um, a bit of an explosion of growth right now, and that's going to lead to very, very strong Q2 GDP growth, we think in the order of 10% at an annualized basis. Um, and then Q3 will moderate a bit, still very strong given the handoff from the second quarter, very likely, so maybe about 8% growth. And then we, we return to, to kind of a mid-single-digit growth rate. But I think what's important when you're looking at growth rates is to think about the starting point. So right now we still have growth to be kind of made up for from the COVID shock. Um, and we haven't yet closed the output gap. So a fast bounce now, the data that we're seeing, it's still quite reasonable, especially given all the stimulus and other support for the economy. So there's kind of still this catch up that's happening in correcting for the COVID shock and returning to the trend level of growth that we would have seen previously. Once you close the output gap, then you're running above, right? And the question is how much above will you run and how overheated will the economy uh, become in that regard? Michelle, you've got the data dead on last couple of weeks, the important data points. Retail sales yeah. right in there, right on the button with claims right now. Yes, a wrong kind of upside surprise, but payrolls on Friday. You were looking for a million. We got north of 900K. What is it that you're looking at right now that is a decent guide for what kind of numbers this economy is churning out? Well, our, our team has been really focused on alternative data sources, high frequency data sources. So we've been heavy consumer of all kinds of data. And that has really helped us, I think, in the sense of being able to gauge in real time some of these monthly statistics um, and kind of get a good sense of the direction of the surprise. Um, so for jobs, claims is one indicator, but it's only one. Um, we look at a variety of different survey um, measures. We also look at measures of actual demand. Um, you know, how much people are spending, how much they're moving, measures of mobility, and all of that kind of filters in to an estimate at the end of the day. Michelle, um, 
Yeah. Well, given that, given the high frequency focus and your ability to pinpoint where we are, what is the labor market dynamic? We're hearing about labor market shortages, particularly in the services yeah. sectors that are trying to come back on. Are you expecting more wage pressure than the street currently agrees on? You know, not necessarily. I think on the wage side, you could see on you know certain sectors temporary increases in wages. But I don't anticipate a big um, and sustainable move high in wages at this point in time because of where the labor force participation rate is. It's only partially recovered. And I imagine that the labor supply will be picking up quite meaningfully once we get to the point where a larger share of the population is vaccinated and can safely return to work, especially in those leisure sectors where there's a lot of in-person activity. When mm -hmm. schools are properly reopened and you can go back out into the workforce without concern over childcare, um, and when the job opportunities are very clearly there, we still have more to do in terms of labor demand as well, particularly again right. in those leisure sectors. So in the short term, there could be frictions and you probably will see some wage increases. But I think in the next year or so, there's still a lot of labor supply that's going to come into the into the economy. And that should mitigate some of the upside. When we're doing a million a month or whatever we're going to do in jobs, Michelle Meyer, what are the deciles of this nation look like? I mean, in your acclaim with housing, we've clearly got a halves housing market. But what is the decile, the tenths of our population break up right now in the Ameri in the labor economy? Well, I mean, this, this cycle has been dubbed the K-shaped recovery, and that's for good reason. If you look at the top third of the income distribution, they actually normalized the labor market, right? Jobs returned to pre-COVID level within a few months of the pandemic, right? Summer of last year. Um, the middle income tier, they kind of normalized the level of jobs by the fall of last year. But that bottom third of the income distribution, the level of jobs is still considerably below where we were prior to COVID. So when you think about the amount of makeup that has to be done or catching up in the sense of getting the economy back to normal, it's very heavily concentrated amongst the lower income population. And that's really where I think policymakers are keenly focused right now. That's where the hard work begins right now. Michelle, great to catch up. Wonderful work, stellar work the last couple of weeks specifically. Michelle Meyer there, Bank of America Securities Head of US Economics. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.